If you could open up your Bibles at this time to Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 18. I'll be reading beginning in verse 4, Ezekiel chapter 18. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time in your word. I pray that, uh, that I will have proven to done my, have done my work to honor you in what's taught. Pray that those hearing these words would honor you by receiving what comes from your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 and following. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. You may be seated. So there is a principle in those words you need to consider, probably with every sermon that you're going to hear uh, from the pulpit, especially those in having to do with the law of God. It's a warning. Um, it's a warning to God's people that a Christian should not expect things to go well for him or her if he commits the sins as, same sins as an unbeliever. It's the principle of verse 4 there. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. A person can be a Christian, but that means you are to offer up your life as a living sacrifice to God. God does not give a Christian eyes to see power from on high and liberty, liberty to go and do whatever he pleases, but to do what God wants. That's why we've been made his people, to do what he wants. You've been released from captivity to serve as a free man. And if you... If you refuse to serve the owner of your soul, you will fall down. You will have trouble. But you will stand if you believe and obey. And God, by his mercy, can take a Christian 
who's completely fouled up his life and stand them back up again. All souls belong to God. We each answer for our thoughts, our words, our deeds. The Christian has been chosen to a high calling. But should you decide to eat with the pigs, then God will allow you to be covered in dirt. Even to the distinction, I tell you, between you and your spouse, even the distinction between you and your parents, or you and your children. We each must make our own bed for God. This is good news for the compliant person. Be one of those. It's your choice. I suggest you obey God in all that he has commanded Christ wants to sanctify you. He wants you to be clean. If, if you choose to believe some part of his character or portion of his law that it's not true, if you choose to believe it's not true and determine to disregard him, then don't expect his approval, but more likely his punishment. That's fair. Who's to blame? Not God. Now, you, you may have noticed that Ezekiel said a righteous man does not approach his wife in her time of menstrual impurity. It was tucked into that list of other sinful things. And we'll get to that subject in a bit. I first want to do a little house cleaning on the last sermon, which forbade marriages of incest. Last time I spoke of the holiness of the home and how God gave us the uncovering of nakedness only for the man and woman in marital covenant. God made it to draw together the two into one flesh. It, it is by the uncovering that families are made. I also exhorted how God told us to guard the marriage bed. First, he makes illegal forever sexual intimacy with another member of your family. That is the forbidden marriage. We are not to cover the naked, uncover the nakedness of close relatives, or you might say those who often come to family gatherings or live within the family quarters. These are those people close to you. You probably, probably the ones who are there at the Thanksgiving or Christmas time. Some are blood relatives, others have married their way into the family. Moses cited specific relatives in verses 6 through 18 of Leviticus 18. He makes them out of bounds. I called them forbidden degrees. Some are forbidden according to bloodline of the first and second degree. The first degree were immediate, like a sister, your mom, your daughter. First degree. Second degree, bloodline included your dad's sister, your mom's sister, your son's daughter. The other illegal relatives were relatives by marriage. These are the ones who married 
one of the bloodline members that we just mentioned. They married into the family and are now off limits forever. And that's where I'm at right now with some house cleaning I'd like to do due to conversations we had after the sermon. I thought I might touch upon two subjects. The first one has to do with the statute in the law that seems to contradict the law against incest. It's the Leverite law mentioned in Genesis 38.8 and Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10. I'll read the Deuteronomy passage and the Genesis passage in a moment. The Leverite law, I want to tell you, has nothing to do with Levi, nothing to do with the Levitical priests or the tribe or any of that. The word Levi actually has to do with the brother-in-law, all right? A brother-in-law. The Leverite law refers to the custom of a man marrying his dead brother's widow. Okay? A man marrying his dead brother's widow. In other words, if he were to abide by the Leverite law, he would need to marry his own sister-in-law, his brother's wife. And Moses, in Leviticus 18.16, which we looked at last time, told us that the sister-in-law was off-limits. The brother's wife was off-limits. Let me read Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Feel free, if you'd like to turn there, you can. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That's the Leverite law. Okay? It seems to contradict what we were talking about or what Moses was writing in Leviticus, but it doesn't because it's an exception. It's an exception to the rule. And the key to this law is the clause, one of them dies and has no son. In Israel, okay, it's the son who would inherit the father's household. If the widow already had a son, then her husband's household was set. 
It was established already. The heir was her son, and she would be cared for. Property was established under the name of the husband who belonged to a family and a kin and under one of the tribes of Israel. It was to the tribes that the land was partitioned out when they came into the promised land. If some man from the tribe of Asher had married a daughter from the tribe of Benjamin, his household would have established under his name, that of Asher. The deceased brother, therefore, was the one who held deed to the land and and its belongings. And he needed a son to take possession of it, so it remained in the family, the land and the property, and it remained under the, the tribe of Asher. And though the wife would naturally be honored in the household, she did not get to break up the inheritance and deliver it to another tribe. So she was kind of stuck. Her hope was to have a son carry the inheritance. Her hope was to have a son and new husband and other children who would call her blessed. The the Leverite law's purpose was to honor both the woman and the deceased brother. If you marry this widow, she's still being cared for by her husband's family. She does not become a disenfranchised person like an orphan. Let her go to fend for herself. The house to which she belongs is still going to be built up if she's able to marry the brother until she has been given a son. And when that firstborn son is grown, and until that firstborn son is grown, the living brother and the wife, the widow, would maintain the deceased brother's property. Eventually, it would be stewarded by the son, who was the legal legal descendant. And that is because the firstborn son of the new union would be given the name of the deceased brother. Probably not his literal name, but the name of the owner of the household. Therefore, that son inherits the first husband's property. And though he would have a living father, it was his deceased father whose name he carried on. So that's kind of the the Leverite law as it was established in the land of Israel. You see an example of this take place even before the law is given in Genesis chapter 38. I think you're going to find this interesting. This is a, uh, this is a passage that people point to often and say this is why um, 
uh, masturbation is illegal, is sinful. But this passage does not teach that at all. So let me just read the passage. You're going to see it goes along with the Leverite law idea, right? It says in uh, chapter 38 of Genesis, beginning in verse 6, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar, or Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, which is his brother, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Okay, you get it? So her husband dies. Judah, her father, says to one of the sons, It's your turn to take her uh, on as a wife and, and raise up offspring so that your brother doesn't doesn't lose his, his inheritance. But Onan, okay, the brother who was still alive, knew that the offspring would not be his, at least the firstborn son. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did, it says, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. A third son. Okay. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now it's apparent from that episode that Onan was preventing his brother from having an heir by doing what he did. Perhaps he thought he could possess both households and have a greater property by doing this. Because, after all, he would maintain his brother's property with his widowed new wife. And God killed him for it. God frowns upon the man who is concerned for his own self-interest at the expense of his family members. The Leverite law is an exception to the rule against marital incest. It is a law that protects households and thinks of others ahead of yourself. In fact, if you decline to marry your sister-in-law, then it would be to your shame. There was no other penalty for your neglect just shame. The law says that the brother's wife shall go up to the man in the presence of the elders, pull off his, pull off his sandal, off his foot, and spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, I, I think... Um, well, today in Israel, okay, re-exists uh, re as a state with people. This sandal concept is kind of legally prescribed for everybody. They don't go along in Israel with the Leverite law whatsoever. They call this sandal concept halatza. It, it means untying. It means you're not bound. No one was required to marry the widowed sister-in-law in Israel today. However, 
the protection is really not there then for the widow. The Leverite marriage has been outlawed in Israel by the decision of the rabbis. Okay, so we can discuss that more, the Leverite marriage, but I did want to bring it up as it pertains to Leviticus 18. The second point for house cleaning is short. It has to do with Moses' limit to the... And I get it. Okay, some of you sitting here listening to this and going, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? Right? What do I care about this? It doesn't affect me. Well, I guarantee you, it does affect some people. Right? And, and, and what you want to do is you want to take in the Word of God, try to understand His law, because you might actually interact with people that you can help because you know something. Second point for house cleaning has to do with Moses' limits to the extent of who can and cannot marry when it comes to relatives. And I'll tell you what, living in a a rich, Dutch, compacted culture, that was a big question for people. And finger-pointing took place when it shouldn't have, most likely. I mentioned the two layers of degree of bloodline that you are not permitted to marry from. They were forbidden you. However, people, I don't know, we tend to want to add to God's law, right? To go beyond, to push beyond his boundaries. He sets a boundary and we think, well, it might be safer, right? If he put the line here, to put it a little further. Because I don't want to sin. I want to be more righteous. Be more holy that way. But whenever you do that, Christian, problems arise. For example, drunkenness is a sin. People want to take that as a rule and decide, well, not only is drunkenness a sin, I'm going to make all alcohol off limits. Teetotaling is the only way of the Christian. That's foolishness. That's made-up rules. Why? Because it's safer. If I don't drink any alcohol, then I'll never get close to becoming drunk. By that logic, I say, if you never eat any food, you will never get close to becoming a glutton. Oh, well, I guess... Does it make sense then? Or greed. If greed is my problem, I will give away all my money to those who are in need. It's like we decided in those cases to improve upon God's law as if it weren't good enough. Well, at some point in history, the Roman church began to forbid degrees of bloodline that extended further and further from what Moses prohibited. It got to a point where marriage was forbidden between great-grandchildren of two brothers and sisters. Okay, so my eyes always kind of glaze over at this point. Well, what does that look like? So my 
So if Atticus were to have a daughter, okay, that would mean that, according to the Roman church, his daughter could not marry my sister Angie's great-grandson. Okay? They felt that made sense, the, Ro- the Roman church, that that should be prescribed for the community. Well, my sister right now, she has kids. I think her oldest is 21, maybe. What is about 21? Anyway, she'd get married, have kids, right? That would be grandchildren to my sister. So that child would have to get married and have a son to marry Atticus's daughter. No, it's forbidden. At some point, this gets a little ridiculous, especially when you're living in a community of people where brothers and sisters are having families and they're having families and they're not going far from each other, which was Israel's challenge. The Roman church family tree extended to forbid relative marriages very far out and obviously... We're all related at some point. So I say you stick with what Moses gave us, period. You start making judgments beyond that. You're starting to accuse people and having them carry guilt that they shouldn't have to feel like they got to carry. It was a problem, Rabbi Hertz writes, the hardship resulting from such unbounded extension of prohibited degrees by the Roman law and church, was to some, it was to some extent mitigated by dispensation, right? Which the church granted in certain circumstances, but this led to great abuses, okay? So what they would do is, because they had these rules going out further and further, someone in authority would give a dispensation and say, it's okay for you. It's okay for you. Never mind that law for you, in your case. Dispensation is when someone with legal authority relaxes the law for someone else in a particular case. A little like making an exception for some person who broke the law, but not for others. You could see how that would be abused. And I suggest the reason the Catholic Church handed out these dispensations or even needed to is because they created such a broad system of forbidden marriages that it became impractical. Dispensation, Hertz adds, is unknown in Judaism. They don't play that game. I suggest you must be careful not to call sin something God has not called sin. Too many people have been made to carry guilt for marrying some relative who was never called off limits in Scripture. That's unfair. It's it's unchristian to do that to them. We turn now to Leviticus, okay, 1819. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. In a sentence, it's a sin for a husband and wife to lay with one another during the woman's monthly courses.
This is evident first from the law appearing in the middle of the list of other clearly condemned practices in which the Hebrew people were to differentiate themselves from the pagan nations. Leviticus 18. It is also evident from three other portions of Scripture that I, one I mentioned already and two more I will in a minute. And these second two will awaken you to the seriousness of this sin. First we think, well, who ever heard of that? That's Old Testament, right? Can't we just do whatever we want? It's our wife. It's our husband. I don't think so. Leviticus 20.18, if a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and covers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood, but both of them shall be cut off from among their people. This is Leviticus 20.18. He has uncovered, he has made naked her fountain, she has uncovered the fountain of her blood, both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Ezekiel 22, okay, reads this way. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. Listen to these, okay? You tell me one of these that are appropriate in this list that I'm about to share with you. You you just find a couple that are good. Nah, they don't matter anymore. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. Mm, still bad. The sojourner, sojourns, uh, the sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. Not good. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains, they commit lewdness in your midst. In you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife, another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law, another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion, but me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. Those are all bad things still. And what was in there? the law we're talking about today. Refraining from relations during menses is not something you hear taught these days. That's not the gospel. Yeah, but if we want to do what God wants us to do or don't want to do the things that God has forbidden, then we need to hear these things. The command may even surprise you. Oops. Some of us are maybe repulsed at the thought, others not. R.J. Rushdooney, he wrote a book years ago. I think it came out in the early 70s. It was um, his Institutes of Biblical Law. And he found in some that men demand it this forbidden thing, that men demand it as an act of aggression and domination precisely because the woman is offended by it. And with feminism, 
Many women demand it as a proof of love for the same reason, i.e. because it is offensive to the man. He took some heat when he addressed the subject from various quarters. That's why he knows these things. Point A, what does the law mean? It means that when your wife is in the state of menses, you must not have relations. This is uncovering not only her nakedness, which is your prerogative as a husband, but it also uncovers the fountain of her blood, which is not proper. That you do not have permission to do. You mustn't. And so, yes, God governs a man's intimate relations with his own wife. Certainly accidents happen. She was not in the state of menses, but it came. It surprised them both. That's no sin. God would have proclaimed them both ritually unclean because of it, but not guilty of disobedience. And because he did not permit the ritually unclean person to be in his presence, he prescribed a washing remedy to become clean again. We spoke of these things in a previous sermon, and the concepts of clean and unclean were grave for those in the community of Israel as God tabernacled among them. Leviticus 18.19 is telling us that it is a sin to know your wife is in such a state, and yet you uncover her nonetheless. This is no accident. Instead, it has become a detestable act, a defiant act, an act for which God prescribed you to be cut off from the community, Leviticus 20.18, as I read. And I'll speak more to what that cutting off might mean in a later sermon. It could mean death, it could mean excommunication, or exile. Each is serious. For now I say the uncovering is an invasion. It dishonors your wife. It dishonors God. It dishonors you. It is counted as one of the deplorable actions of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. One commentator, I don't remember who it was, called this uncovering of the fountain uncontrolled and beastly. In contrast, J.H. Hertz writes, Jewish men have been taught respect for womanhood, moral discipline, and ethical culture. As for Jewish women, they were, on the one hand, given protection from uncurbed passion, and on the other hand, taught to view marital life under the aspect of holiness. Yes, a wife should be respected in her person and during each God-prescribed cycle. Dr. C.E. Hillel Cover says that proper practices in the home transform the Jewish woman into the king's daughter all glorious within her palace. 
Whereas, Calver writes, yielding, yielding to the feverish impulses of the flesh spells ruin and heartbreak. Point B in this section, how long must one wait? How long must you refrain? When is it over? Now, for Israel... You've got to hear this. There's a distinction, I believe. For Israel, they were required to refrain from relations during the time of Mensis, but also a full seven days afterward. He's the best whistler these days. This became known as the law of Nida, or the state of Nida separation. Nida is a Hebrew word which means separation or withdrawal. On the last of the seven pure days, okay, after the state of Mensis had ended, on the, the, the last of the seven pure days, there came a time of bathing called the mikvah. And the mikvah was a pool, basically, it means, and it means a natural gathering of, the, of water. There should be natural water that somehow is brought to it. And so the woman would end her nida separation with this ceremonial washing in the mikvah. It was this bathing that Bathsheba was doing on the roof when King David first saw her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, according to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4. Now, I recall reading years ago Rabbi Shmuley Botich talking about this longer period than I ever anticipated, a longer period of refrain. And I thought, boy, that seems unreasonable. Yet this was required by the, you know, for the Hebrews by Moses. And this longer period of need separation, it finds support in Scripture text. If you look in Leviticus chapter 15, I'm going to read this for you, beginning in verse 28. It says, but if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus she shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So, I mean, it was an existing rule. That final verse, though, is important, for it emphasizes God's concern that the people of Israel do not defile his tabernacle in their uncleanness. And that brings me to point C. So then, I think there is a moral, ethical element here that we should abide by, and then there is a ceremonial element that we are no longer bound to. I believe the ceremonial element was tied to the existence of a tabernacle or temple later on, the priests and the sacrifices that took place in Israel. Those things no longer exist. I do not, therefore, see how it would even be possible to wait this extra seven days and wash with water for purification and bring a sacrifice on the eighth day to the priests. This is not the Christian's concern. 
I do believe a husband and wife must refrain from conjugal relations for moral reasons. And therefore, the law still binds us during the state of menses. I also find it curious, and I'll end with this, how some Jews, okay, they're not Christians, they're, they're Jews, they don't receive the work of Christ uh, and recognize him as their savior and king. I find it curious how some of them have reworked the law to make sense of it, okay, since the temple and the sacrifice and the priestly order have been eliminated by the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It is an attempt to carry on with their regulations somehow, and yet there is no tabernacle or temple to defile. So what's happened, Harry Lazarus writes, is that some felt that these restrictions of the national sanctuary should be continued and applied to the synagogue and its worship. So they have gone so far to have, uh, what is the word, mitvahs built so that they could honor this additional seven-day period, do a complete uh, bathing, and, and be through it in the name of the synagogue now versus in the name of the temple. I find that curious, but so be it. We pray. Lord, I pray and I ask that we would... Um, Learn how to be the kind of people you want us to be. There, there, is no, um, there is no doubt that your law instructs us how to live, uh, how to um, enjoy one another, how to work, how to think, how to treat people. And we must go to it to learn these things. This isn't come... By osmosis, this doesn't come by vision or dream. It's been given to us, and so I pray that we would be attentive to it and that we might be able to help others understand your ways, that they might walk uprightly. In Jesus' name, amen.